James chapter 4. Tonight is the second sermon on the doctrine of humility. James chapter 4 verse 6. Last week we studied what is humility. And at the end we came up with this definition. To be low before God. To be low, to put yourself low. And that's why Chivenda has a great definition. What is humility in Chivenda? Uditukupadza. And Tsonga, just as nice, Kutitsongahata. Lloyd, can you match that with Shona? Is it as beautiful in Shona? Is it to make yourself small? Kutitsongahata. May the Lord help all of us to become low before God. James chapter 4, verse 6. The Bible says, But he gives more grace, greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But he gives greater grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You cannot receive grace without humility. And that's the lesson tonight. Or in other words, humility is the foundation of every gracious act of God in saving us. Humility is the foundation of every virtue. If you want to have a life that is good, you must start with humility. Not love and not faith. You must start with humility. That's the message tonight. I've just told you in five different ways. Did you get it? We start with humility. That's the message. Now every Sunday night for the next few weeks or months, we are going to study the doctrine of humility. And tonight we start with this. If you don't have humility, you have locked your own door to all of God's good gifts. If you don't have humility, you're closing the door yourself. You're turning off the tap. You are hanging up the phone. If you don't have humility, you've lost all the access to grace. Let me prove that to you. Look right down at your Bibles in James 4 verse 1. James 4 verse 1. From where do we get wars and fightings? Do you have a pen? Come with a pen on these Sunday nights. Who needs a pen? Someone need one? Here, Carson, you and Colin share. You have one there. Caleb, that one might bleed through your Bible. I'm not sure if you want to use it. James 4, verse 1, is going to say wars and fightings, and then again, war. Maybe your Bible says quarrel. Does it say quarrel in your Bible? Or the New American says conflict. Underline every word that has to do with fighting. How many are there in verse 1? There are three. War. Fight. War. Look in verse 2. How many words in verse 2 have to do with fighting? Kill or murder. Maybe your Bible says murder. In James 4 verse 2. Fight. War. 
You lust and do not have. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war that you do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you are asking the wrong way so that you might consume it on your lusts. Verse 4, you adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship of the world is... What's the next word in your Bible? Is it enmity or hostility? Do you know what the word enmity means? Hatred. That's what enmity means. If you have a Bible that says enmity, you're just writing there, hatred. Some Bibles say hostility. Does anyone have a Bible with the word hostility? Hatred. And then again, keep going in verse 4. Then do you see, whoever... Whoever has friendship with the world has hatred with God. Whoever therefore will be a friend of the world is what with God? The enemy of God. Underline those words. So we've seen how many words for fighting, conflict, war, quarreling, hatred, enemy. There are eight of them. Is that what your life is like? Let's just pause and review the whole book of James. Do you know the book of James? James chapter 1 verse 2 says, Brothers, don't be surprised when your life is filled with problems. That's James 1 verse 2. There's problems. So James 1 verse 5, what do you need? You need to ask for Wisdom. Go, go, ask for wisdom. There's going to be a lot of problems. It's going to come about in sin. James 1 verse 13. But when sins come into your life, don't blame God. Blame yourself. James 1 verse 18 Your problem is you're not born again. You see, the Bible would make you to be born again. If you would just obey it, that's James 1, verse 21 to 25. If you would just obey the Bible, you see your life is filled with problems because you're not obeying the Bible. You've got sins and problems and temptations everywhere because you just need to obey the Bible. James chapter 2, humble yourself. James chapter 2, don't talk about being religious. Obey the Bible. That's what he says in James 2. Faith without works is dead. Don't say, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Show me that you're a Christian. Obey God. James chapter 3. If you really want to obey God, then close your mouth. James 3, 1 to 8. The problem is our tongue. He even says there, the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. If any one of you can control your tongue, you have controlled your whole body. And so you need to control your tongue. So James chapter 3 says, go ask God for wisdom. And there's two kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom that comes from Satan. James 3 verse 15. There's a wisdom that actually comes from the devil. You don't want that. That's the wisdom of this world. All those people, they can give you that kind of wisdom. You need the wisdom that is from above. The wisdom that is gentle and Humble. And then we come to chapter 4. Where he says, look at your life. You've got wars, fighting, conflict, tension, quarreling. You love the world and you've made God your enemy. Where does all this fighting come from? Verse 5 tells us. Look at verse 5. Now, verse 5 is is a little tricky. 
Because verse 5 says, do you think that the scripture says to no purpose? And then here, I'm going to read it in my translation and then explain it. I know your translation is different. There's about five translations for this verse. Verse 5. Do you think that the scripture says to no purpose, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? Perhaps your Bible says, God yearns jealously over the spirit he has caused to dwell in you. Does your Bible say that? Several of you have that Bible translation. Some of you have the translation that says, God longs with jealousy for the spirit that lives in you. This is a tricky thing here because look down at verse 5. There's an important lesson I want to teach you from verse 5. Verse 5 has two verbs. The first verb is the word lust or desire or long for or yearn for. Kuranza. Ufuna. Kuda. Do you see in your Bible the word lust or desire or yearn or long? Do you see that word? And your Bible probably says God longs. Or does it say he longs? Which does yours say, God or he? What does yours say, Vanessa? He yearns. He yearns, yeah. Now, that word he can refer to the spirit or to God. Is it the spirit or is it God? I want to submit to you that it only makes sense if it's the spirit. And then secondly, we have a second question. Is the spirit the Holy Spirit of God or is it my spirit? This whole verse changes if the he is God or is the he the spirit. And then is the spirit the Holy Spirit or is the spirit my spirit? So you've all those two questions. Is the he God or is the he the spirit? And then is the spirit the Holy Spirit or is the spirit my spirit? There's two questions. It's not hard, you can get it. In Greek... The he can refer to either God or the Spirit. Let's try it the first way. Does this make sense? Look at verse 5. I'm going to read it as if God is the one who longs for the Spirit. Verse 5. Do you think that the scripture says to no purpose, God earnestly desires the Spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? What does that mean? God eagerly desires our spirit? Like he loves us, maybe? Is that what this passage is talking about? Is this passage talking about how God loves us? Uh-oh, have you forgotten already? What's the word we just saw eight times? What word or what idea comes up eight times? Fighting. Right, it's fighting and warring. Would verse 5 make any sense if after he says, you're fighting and warring and fighting and warring, that's why the scripture says, God loves you. Does that make sense? You're fighting, there's this war. If you're the friend of the world, you're God's enemy. If you're the friend of the world, there's hatred between you and God. That's why the scripture says, God loves you. Does that make sense? I don't think so. I think, therefore, the only option in the context is to say that the spirit is, or the he is my spirit. So, rather than saying, God longs for my spirit, it should be, and it certainly isn't, 
God longs for the Holy Spirit. The only way that it makes sense is if the Spirit is longing for my own sinful desires. Now, is that what this passage has been about? Look at verse 1. What is your spirit doing in verse 1? Warring and fighting. And do you see the word lust or desire or pleasure? Lloyd, what does your Bible have in verse 1 for the word lust or desire or pleasure? Passions. That's it. Whose passions, Lloyd, in verse 1? Whose passions? It's me, right? And then look down in verse number, look down in verse 2. Can you read that verse, Lloyd? You desire and do not so you murder. Stop. You desire and you don't get it, so you murder people. Who's doing the desiring? Who's doing the murdering? Us. Now why would you jump down to verse 5 all of a sudden and say, God earnestly desires the spirit that he put in me? What makes sense in verse 5 is this. The spirit that dwells inside me is like a dog in a cage. Fighting to get out. Have you ever come to someone's house where the dog was vicious and it wanted to get out? And you thought, oh, I'm glad that fence is there. That's what the Bible's saying in verse 5. That fits perfectly with the context. Verse 1 there's wars, there's fighting. Verse 2, you you have these great desires and you're murdering people. You're fighting and warring. Verse 4, there's hatred. You're an enemy with God if you love the world. Verse 5, that's why the scripture had a good reason when it said, the spirit that's inside of you is like a dog, (laughs) eager to get out, full of lust and sin. This is a verse on total Depravity. And do you know how I know for sure? What's the final proof that proves that's the right interpretation of this verse? Look at verse 6. What's the first word in verse 6? But means, watch. But means we're walking this way, and then what? We turn around, right? Verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. War, fighting, war, fighting. But. But what? God gives more grace. Verses 1 to 5 are a demonstration of the world without grace. Do you want to live in a world like verses 1 to 5 with murdering and fighting and enemies? Do you want to live in a home that way? The conflict in this life is terrible for three reasons. Number one, because we are fighting with other people. Look in verse one. You'll see it right there. From whence do we get wars and fightings among you? That's a plural you. All of you. Where do the wars come from among all of you people? Don't they come because all of you people have these passions, these desires, these lusts? These pleasures. Verse 2. You, that's a plural you. All of you are going out there lusting and desiring. You murder, that's a plural you. All of you are going out there murdering. The conflict in life is terrible because it's conflict with other people. You can't have a war without two people. conflict in this life is terrible because it's also with our own hearts. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motive. Why? So that you may consume it upon what? 
own pleasures. Whose pleasures are the problem? Me. I'm fighting me. I've got to fight with you because you've got a sinful heart and now I've got to fight with me. There's enemies outside and there's enemies inside. There's enemies somewhere else. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist who? You've got to have a fight with Satan himself. Go back to chapter 3, verse 15. The wisdom, chapter 3, verse 15. This wisdom does not come from above, but it is earthly, sensual. And what is the source of the wisdom of this world? Chapter 3, verse 15. What's the source? Demons. Devils. Satan. Friends, these wars are coming from demons. This tension, these sins, these lusts are coming from demons. Now, I've done all of this in the Sermon on Humility to set it up right here. Are you ready? <clears throat> Can you imagine living in a world like that? Can you imagine living in a home where there's a mom and a dad like that? They shout at each other. They sometimes hit each other. The woman cries. The man curses her. The children don't want to be there. Can you imagine living in a society where they have to walk and put bars on everything because there's so much fighting and warring and murdering? Can you imagine looking up into the night sky and seeing all of the stars? And can you imagine if each one of those stars represented a powerful spiritual being who hates you and hates God? And he can come down to earth invisibly. And he can come right into the minds of people and put thoughts in their mind. And he's not blocked by geography and he's not, these spirits are not blocked by walls. They can go right into the mind of the president or the police chief. Can you imagine living in a world like that? You would want some protection. That's what African traditional religion was supposed to do. Africans have followed African traditional religion because they're trying to get protection from a world like this. But verse 6 is going to tell us what we need to do. Where should we get the protection from? What's the solution to living in a world that dark and dirty? Verse 6, what's the solution? It's a word that starts with G. Tell me, everyone. Grace. We need grace. That's the solution. If I could just somehow find a way to get grace, then I'd have it made. But look in verse 6. Where does grace come from in verse 6? From who? He gives grace. The source of all grace is outside of us. It's not inside of us. It's somewhere out there. Inside of me is the war and the fighting. But outside of me is grace. The source of it. Where can I get it? It's God. God has this grace. He's the source. Can you think of some other gifts that come only from God? Repentance. Acts chapter 5. He gives repentance to his people. 2 Timothy 2.24. 
If a man is a sinner, go talk to him gently because maybe God will give him repentance. Have you ever repented? If you have ever repented of your sins, it's because God gave you something. That's a great gift, isn't it? There's another gift. It's a gift called faith. Do you know that faith is a gift from God? Let me show that to you. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll come back here to James. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you're sitting by someone who does not know where it is, help them find where it is. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8. Ephesians 2 verse 8. Daniel, can you read that verse, please? Ephesians 2 8. What is the gift of God? It's faith. There's six reasons why it's faith. Number one, faith is the noun closest to it. Therefore, it's faith. Number two, there are no other good options. If it's not faith that's the gift, what else is the gift? The grace? Well, the grace is further away in the sentence. And of course, grace is a gift from God. Number three, other passages tell us that faith is a gift from God. Number four, if faith is not a gift from God, then verse 9 does not make sense. Look at verse 9. Not of what? Works. If faith is not a gift, then faith is a good work that you can do. In fact, Jesus said... When the Pharisees asked him, what should we do? He said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. What is the work of God? Believe on the one he sent. How do you do God's work? Believe in Jesus. That's the way to do God's work. But wait a minute. Ephesians 2.9 says it's not from works. Oh, that means it's not from works that we can do. If faith is not a gift, then it's a work that we're doing. But verse 9 says, no, 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 no works. Ashimimitirwin. Ashimimitirwin. Ashimishumo. Faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. Go back to James 4, verse 6. James 4, 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a quotation from Proverbs 3, verse 34. It's coming right from the Old Testament. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, wait a minute. This does not mean All grace. How do I know that? Because God gave every sinner on the world today the sun this morning. Sinners all over this town and all across this country ate food today. Is that grace? Yeah. Sinners all around this world looked at beautiful mountains and beautiful flowers and beautiful men and beautiful women today. They did that. Was that grace? Oh, yes. Now, the word that theologians use to describe grace like that is this word. Common grace. 
Common grace is the grace that makes our lives nice, but it does not save. You have common grace. You have common grace. Everyone has common grace. How many sinners drive nice cars? Common grace. How many sinners eat comfortable food, have cold drink, have money? Common grace. How many sinners had a good night's rest last night? Common grace. That's not what James 4 verse 6 is talking about. Because common grace comes to people whether they are proud or whether they are humble. Common grace comes to everyone. Have you ever seen a man who plays soccer and at the end he's so full of pride and calls down all the fans to worship him? He's full of pride, but he's still a good athlete. That's grace. This verse is not talking about common grace. It's talking about the second kind. Can you guess what the name is for the second kind of grace? There's two kinds of grace. Common grace, and what's the other? Dinero, do you know it? Papanigo? Special grace. Special grace is grace given to some people, not everyone. It's grace that only goes to some. James 4 verse 6 is talking about special grace because James 4 verse 6, that grace only goes to who? What people? The humble. All the proud people lose that grace. They never get it. He doesn't give those people. But if there was, if there was two groups of people up here, let's put on this side of the, of the carpet. Let's put on this side all of the proud people. And let's put on this side all of the humble people. Over here, all the humble people get grace. But all the people on that side, they get nothing. They might get rain and cold drink and money and big cars, but they don't get the grace in this verse. Because the grace in this verse has a condition. What's the condition for the grace in verse 4? Humility. Now do you see the point of the sermon? We don't want to live in a world with fighting and anger and killing and murder. We don't want to have a heart that way. But there's only one way out of a heart like that. What's the way out? Grace. And there's only one way to get grace. It's as if, using the illustration that I gave you earlier, it's as if you're locking the door on the inside so that the gift cannot come in. If you are proud, you're going inside and you're locking the door. But imagine this. When you lock the door, you don't have the key to open it again. That's the scenario. It, it locks. You can lock it very easily, but you can't reopen it. You need a key. God's got to give you grace, but he only gives grace to people who are low. That's why grace is the, uh, humility is the beginning of all the graces. Now, I want to draw your attention to a remarkable thing that James does. James is not like Paul the Apostle. You know that, don't you? James is not like him. He's different. You see, Paul the Apostle, he gives very detailed descriptions of theology. Read Romans chapter 4. Very detailed. Read Romans chapter 5. You're going to have very complicated theology. Read Galatians chapter 3, the discussion of the law and faith. Read Ephesians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1. Deep theology, brothers and sisters. James is not like that. You see, James is a pastor. 
of the largest church in the world. The church at Jerusalem. On one day, they had 3,000 people converted. I'd like to see that. What about you? Can you be number one of them? A few days later, he saw 5,000 people. Can you imagine being the pastor of a church? On one day, you've got 120 people. That's how many of these stuff. That's a pretty good church, right? The first day they go on evangelism, 3,000 people are converted. A few days later, they're on evangelism again, 5,000 people are converted. They have no church buildings. They meet in the homes of people. The pastor has to travel home to home. He's so busy all day, day and night, he's traveling. So he has to say, you know what, you know what I, need? I, I, I need you to get deacons. In Acts chapter 6, the church at Jerusalem, they had problems where some of the Jewish women, when their husbands died, they were getting money to help them live and buy food. But some of the Jewish women, they spoke Greek. Kind of like the difference between maybe a, a Tsonga woman who lives in the village and she doesn't speak any English, and a Tsonga woman who's lived in Johannesburg, she speaks fluent English. She also speaks Tsonga, she comes back to the village and then all the women of those, oh, they don't want to associate with her. James had those problems in his church. And so he said, let's get some deacons together. I need some men. I need some men to handle this. I'm so busy going house to house teaching all these 8,000 people. I don't have time to deal with this. Please, Mugobe, come help me sort this out. Well, what do you want me to do, Pastor? I don't care. Sort it out. i got to go house to house and teach the word. James knows what it is to have difficult practical problems. And so he writes this book to his church. He was only alive for a few years before Herod killed him. But before he dies, he's got a book to write. So he gets ready to write this book. It's very practical. <clears throat> so let's look at how practical it is. In verse 6 he says, He gives grace to the humble. And then if you have your pen, take your pen again and start underlining the commands. Number 1, in verse, there are 11 commands. Verse 7, submit. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Command number 2, Resist. Resist who? Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Command number three, verse eight. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Next commands. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Next command. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Next command, verse nine. Maybe your Bible says be humble. Maybe it says be afflicted. Maybe it says be miserable. Next one, mourn or weep or cry. Next one, weep. Next one, let your laughter be turned. That's a command. Let your laughter be turned. Verse 10. What's the command in verse 10? Humble yourselves. What's the command in verse 11? Do not speak evil. Eleven commands. You're going to find a difficult time getting a passage with more commands than this. Maybe Paul in Romans chapter 12. This passage is full of commands. You see, James is a practical pastor. He's not trying to give you nuanced theology. He's trying to give you theology that you can live with. And he says to us all, what is humility? Let me summarize it for you in these commands. Six of these commands are very closely connected with humility. The other five are logically connected. Let's go through them. Look at number one. What does James say? If you want to be humble, here it is. Submit to God. How is that connected to humility? Because our definition of humility is what? 
Go low before God. What is the word submit in Songa? Tiveka. Tiveka hansikashkwembu. Tivekeni. Oh, I love it. It's a perfect translation. Put yourself under. Go below. Second command. Resist the devil. Oppose him. And he will run from you. What's the third one? Draw near to God. Draw near to God. And what will he do if you draw near to him? He will draw... Wait a minute. I'd like to preach the whole sermon just on that phrase. You mean you, a sinful person who has a birthday and a death day, God will move in response to you? The one who holds stars in his hands? If you simply come near to him in humble faith, he'll come near to you? We studied this Tuesday night in theology class. This is the small d decree. God is so merciful and gracious. There are big D decrees that will not change and cannot change. There are some small things. He'll say, I'll do this. I'm waiting for you. I have gently and graciously called you. I've given you my word. Now show that you're interested. Come show an interest. If you draw near to God, he draws near to you. Look at the next one, verse 8. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. That's another word to say repent. How do I know that it means repent? Because look what he calls the people. Cleanse your hands, you what? He doesn't call them saints. He doesn't call them brothers. How would you like it if your pastor talked to you that way? Go wash your hands, you what, Joey? Can I say what, Tadzi? Go wash your hands, Vavi, Vuitazibi. He's called them that before. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. What does he call them in chapter 4, verse 4? Some Greek manuscripts say adulterers. Some Greek manuscripts only say adulteresses. And some Greek manuscripts have both adulterers and adulteresses. I think that it's correct to have both. But notice, what does he call his church members? That is a heavy word. And it's another way to say humble yourselves. How would you like it if your pastor spoke to you that way? That's harsh. We have very thin skins. We get angry way too quickly. Look down at chapter 4, verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. He means repent. What else does he say in chapter 4, verse 8? What's the next command? Purify your hearts. After you change your action, fix your heart. You double-minded people. Verse 9. Be afflicted. That's another term for humility. Be miserable. Do you think churches would talk that way today? How many people will come back to their church if the pastor tells them, I want you to be miserable? I'll tell you how many people. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 9, 10, 11. 11 people will come back. That's how many. But James does it to the largest church in the world. I want you, if you want grace, I want you to be humble. Well, what does it mean, Pastor James? Okay, let me just pour out all of these commands on you. Be miserable. Well, I don't understand what you mean by that. Okay, keep going in verse 9. Mourn like you're at a funeral. Weep. What do you mean, James? James that wrote this book is the brother of our Lord Jesus. 
And what did James mean? He meant what his brother meant in Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who weep over their sins. They will be comforted. James means the exact same thing. Do you want to know what humility looks like? It looks like someone who's miserable and crying. It looks like someone who takes his laughter and changes it. Well, I'm just a happy person. Change. Well, you can't ask me to change my personality. James says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Verse 10, what does he tell us to do? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. That's the second time he's told us that if you humble yourself, God will lift you up. He said it in chapter 1, verse 9. You know, the wonderful thing is, when you humble yourself, chapter James 1, verse 9, he will exalt you in his time. <clears throat> Did you know that all true believers will receive a crown when Jesus comes back? A crown is something that kings wear. Did you know that Revelation 20 verse 4 refers to Christians, not the big pastors, it refers to Christians as kings with God and with Christ who will rule with him for a thousand years. Did you know that's the way it talks about Alvina? Yes, the poor woman from Chicota who just works at a little retail shop. That's the word he uses for you. Not now, but it's coming. And you see, the great, the great change of the false teachers is to overlook humility and try to bring the blessing now. They want the exaltation, zeno. But James says, humble yourselves and he will lift you up when he's ready. He'll do it in his time. The final command from James, verse 11. What is it? Proud people are gossiping people. Why? They think that they have not fallen to the sin that those people have. So he, he has no problem talking about that other person. Oh, look at what a bad person he is. And he's assuming I am not a bad person. Proud people gossip. What does it mean to gossip? It's very simple. To say something bad, whether it's true or false, without a good reason. Even if it's true, there's no need to say it unless you've got a good reason. Now, sometimes there are good reasons. Jesus said many bad things about the Pharisees because he had a good reason. But just think of Jesus after he rose from the dead with Peter. And Peter had denied him three times just like Jesus had promised. And Peter said just a few hours, I'll never deny you. A few hours later, Peter denies him three times with cursing. When Jesus rises from the dead, he's so humble and gentle that he doesn't even bring up the sin with Peter. He just says, Peter, do you love me? He doesn't say, Peter, I've got something to talk to you about. Do you know how you did this and this and this? He doesn't even say the bad things to Peter. He brings it up. Do you love me? And Peter knows what he's talking about. Peter knows exactly. You're talking about the last time you saw me. The very last time. Because it says in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus turned around and saw Peter. And when Peter saw that look from Jesus, he went out and wept. He was broken with humility. And the next time Jesus sees him, Jesus responds humbly to him. Peter, do you love me? 
Do not speak evil one of another, brethren. The one who speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. There are times when we must speak evil. Maybe when you're disciplining your child. You saw your child do something wrong. Come here. Did you do this? No, I didn't do it. You did do it. I saw it, and they saw it, and now you're lying to cover it up. Maybe you talk with your wife. Wife, I'm concerned about our our first child. I'm concerned about our last born. He's doing this and this. You're speaking evil. Well, there's a particularly good cause. Maybe parents need to talk about that to try to sort it out. There are times when you want to speak evil. Maybe a pastor would have to speak with another church member and say, I have to talk to you. Someone came to me and they said they saw you buying this alcohol. Oh, look, they're gossiping about me. Wait, 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 wait. No, we're coming right to you. This is a problem. And I want to find out, is it true? In church discipline, you might have to speak evil. But there's a good cause to recover them from the snare of the devil. To discipline your children. To help a Christian who's fallen into a sin. Galatians 6 verse 1. But if there's not a particularly good reason. James chapter 3 says the tongue is a fire. A world of iniquity. So here it is, James says. Do you want every kind of grace? Do you want saved from that terrible war and fighting? Do you want saved from your own heart that has this war? Do you want salvation from that? There's only one way to get salvation from the war in your heart, from the war and tension with other people. You need what? What is it? Before humility, you need grace. How do you get grace? Humility. Grace is what we need, but we cannot get grace without humility, which is why we say humility is the foundation of all the graces. Are you looking for some grace in your life, in your child's life? Are you looking for some way to grow in righteousness? You'll never grow without humility. You won't become more loving. You won't even learn your Bible more without humility. You won't become a Christian. You won't repent. You won't become gentle. You won't become self-controlled. You won't become that man you want to be or that woman you want to be. You won't grow up to be the boy that becomes a godly man unless you have this grace of humility. It's the foundation. May God give it to us. And if you want the practical way to do it, look at those 11 commands. Pick one, pick two, pick three this week and just obey Pastor James. Follow his advice. Pick two or three or four this week and pray for them every day. Father, give us grace. Give us grace and first of all, the grace of humility. Cause us to be low before God that we might mourn and weep over our sin. We might draw near to God and submit ourselves to God and resist the devil. We might stop speaking evil of one another. Give us this first of all graces. In Jesus' name, amen.